Hello Cabaret fans, welcome to another episode of the broadcast. Bit of a different format this week, I'm going to do an announcement before the show. First of all, I wanted to say thank you to all the fans. We've made it to episode 7, which I didn't know we were going to make it to when I started this podcast. You are all incredible, we have hundreds of people listening every week and that is quite staggering to me. So this podcast is with Paul L. Martin and he gives away at the end of this podcast that I am going to be doing a live Rosie Coles vaudeville broadcast at the cabaret convention in October. So we're going to have a panel discussion about a topic that's relevant to the cabaret and performance scene and then afterwards we're going to have a half hour audience Q&A. I've not done a live podcast before but I am so excited to give it a go and I would love as many of you as possible to come along and be a part of it and share your opinions and tell me all the things. So more details will follow but uh, my cover's blown, it's going to be a live podcast! Send me emails, I love them, and enjoy this week's episode. I think it's a really great one. Okay. You're listening to Rosie Cole's Vaudeville Broadcast. This program may contain adult content, so if you're under 18, please either get permission or switch it off. Hello listeners of The Broadcast. I am so excited this week to be in the presence of Paul L. Martin, who I would describe personally as uh, quite a powerhouse of the cabaret scene. Um, Paul, do you want to explain a little bit about what you do? Yeah. What um, don't you do? <laughs> what don't I? Yeah, it would be quicker, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> I, um, I am an agent for cabaret, burlesque and circus performers. Uh, I'm a performer myself, I work as a compare and a singer predominantly, as well as acting sometimes. Uh, I have been on television as a sort of uh, TV talent show judge, that sort of thing. I run training courses um, and teach in drama schools, um, again, predominantly for cabaret singers or people who are interested in becoming cabaret singers. I created, God, this is stupid, isn't it? <laughs> I created the London Cabaret Awards and I produce them every year. And I created the annual cabaret convention, which is coming up for its second year as well. And I write plays. Okay, just, <laughs> just in case you didn't do enough. <laughs> I think that's everything. Do you, do, you, do you have time to do all these things? Well, just before we put the microphone on, I was telling you about some of my teaching, and I only do teach about you know, two or three times a year now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, my, my calendar sort of, you know, I have so August is teaching month and September October is sort of convention part of the year and the 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 awards kick off you know madly they kick off from January till about the end of March so it depends on the time of year uh, as to who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing! It's it's incredible that you'd be able to to fit all these things in, but I, there are quite few people I think out there who in in the creative industries who. Uh, want to do a lot of different things. It's funny, I used to think that it was a flaw of mine that um, I couldn't stick to any one thing. And for a few years, I had a bash at just sticking with what I was doing, whether that be you know the job I was in or the relationship I was in. Even though I kind of knew somewhere in the back of my mind that they weren't working, which meant that I stayed with this awful man for far too long, and I stayed in an awful job for far too long. Because um, I thought, I, I literally thought that it was wrong to be a jack of all trades, as people often 
call it. Yeah, um, master and, of none. Yeah, the master of none. Is the second half of that phrase. the second half I think that's a bit harsh. Yeah. I like, really identify with that sentiment as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose after I turned 30, I, I came to the realisation that actually it's, it's great to be able to have such a variety in your life. And now I try and celebrate it and be grateful that I can and I have the uh, you know, means and uh, freedom to do these different things. Yeah. Well, there is a positive word for it as well, which is a polymath. And like, who doesn't want to be a polymath? See, I've never called myself that. I've just called myself a jack of all trades, Ooh, always. So a creative polymath. <laughs> Put that on your business card. <laughs> but as, as a cabaret performer, especially as a compare, one has to be quite good at um, being derogatory about oneself to get an audience on side so I would never call myself a polymath because it sounds far too big-headed <laughs> so obviously I'm meeting you now where you're you know you have this really illustrious career behind you and you have done all these amazing things and you're continuing to do all these amazing things but where did that start like did you always know you wanted to go into the arts ever since you were very young or did you kind of fall into it and um, it's it's funny actually because other people knew I wanted I wanted to go into the arts not that I was going to but that I wanted to somehow I've always been a turn and a twirly from when I was very very little I wrote plays when I was I think I was as young as eight or nine when I wrote my first plays I remember writing a stage adaptation. <laughs> so um, what's that um, precocious isn't it um, a stage adaptation of uh, Winnie the Pooh I remember writing and forcing so my friends <laughs> forcing my friends to perform it on the re recreation ground I mean you know th that's as far as the production went um, <laughs> and then I wrote a stage production of the old soap opera dynasty but it was a murder mystery it was called dynastily that was done, <laughs> that was done like you know in a field to no one and then the first play i wrote that ever got actually performed in front of people was called um i own the castle god i must have been 10 or 11 maybe and i wrote a short play which was put on as part of the village fate that year on a proper stage in front of people whereabouts did you grow up oh in a little village just next to canterbury in kent oh i see so it wasn't it's not like the local street party in london i don't know the no 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 well absolutely there. not no quite yeah. a nice community i would imagine for for allowing you to do that kind of thing on one level, yes, I th I th they must have been. Yes, I don't remember my childhood as being very nice or that much of the community being nice, but then we, we often don't remember the good <laughs> things. If Yes, actually, you're quite right. There were countless de delightful people in my childhood, many of them my neighbours and people that I, uh, I was going to say worked with then. What I mean by that is that again rather precociously i was on like the committee of the littleborn littleborn is the name of the village i was on the committee of the littleborn fate committee by the time i was like 14 i was a committee member on something like that i don't i don't just don't, don't like playing i've never liked playing i've never liked going to parties i want to be organizing the party or performing at it or you know i, I don't want to go and see a play i want to be in the play and uh, i can't i can't just go to a fate i have to be running a stall and i don't really know why that i've got a sneaking suspicion why that is but um <laughs> so i was on the littleborn fate committee i was on the committee of the local amateur dramatic society the littleborn players and i worked with and remember was that 14 15 i was working alongside people in their 40s 50s and 60s i was if you think that i'm camp in any way now god you should just see me then oh my god <laughs> i was an absolute screamer and a lot of them 
there, there was an edge to some of them, and I think some of that was who's the freak. Um, partly, he's 14, what the fuck is he doing here? <laughs> and also, you know, my lord, he's a screamer. Um, but for the most part, those women and some men saved my life, saved my childhood, saved mm. me from bullies and this playground and having to go through a normal childhood because I didn't want to. I wouldn't have survived it, I don't think. Yeah, it's amazing that you find a coping mechanism somehow and if that's organising something and, and putting yourself in a different sphere in a different world it's, it's a very sort of yeah you keep using the word precocious it definitely is it's very like self-preservation kind of instinct yeah I um, I started helping one of my music teachers at secondary school in the lunch hour she ran a lunchtime music club for the younger children so I would have been about 15 by then and these kids were 11 or 12 and she asked me if I would be her assistant and I, and I said yes immediately because it meant I didn't have to be in the playground. That's why I wanted to do it. She became a very good friend actually and then she started paying me to run courses with her which I guess is the very beginning of the workshops I do now. Wow. There was no interest in being in a playground. That was, that was hell, the playground. Mm. Yeah, I again sympathise with that completely I think a lot of performers might do because especially on the cabaret circuit it seems like the refuge for all the people who didn't fit in anywhere else it's a bit like being in the Raggy Dolls do you remember that children's programme the Raggy Dolls <laughs> where it's just it's just uh, for anybody that didn't watch it or is far too young um, it's just this sort of like bin in a factory where that where dolls are made and it's where the dolls that were deformed when they came went through the machine end up <laughs> yeah a little bit wrong don't quite fit in anywhere and that's, I, I do think that a lot of cabaret artists come from a place of homelessness almost <laughs> of any kind of uh, not just theatre genre but you know yeah. life let's <laughs> get it all informs the art <laughs> yeah yeah if it doesn't kill you yeah. it makes you stronger yeah. so how did you go from as a teenager um, running all these organisations already and, and being a real vocal uh, part of these things how did you go from there into um, sort of like formalising things and being trained and I I wasn't planning to go and to drama school or have any training at all. I was in the plays and the amateur dramatic society. I was writing plays for fun. I was being was singing, you know, at everyone everywhere I could. I loved it, but I wasn't really entering competitions. I think I did that once. I wasn't that excited by the idea of a career in it. I just wanted to do it. And then I left home and moved in with my first boyfriend and I got a full-time job just after I left school working in the cathedral gift shop in Canterbury Cathedral working with again a bunch of middle-aged women adorable gorgeous women most of whom had my back and loved me one day I was having a little chat with two of them Mia and Emily and um, they said well you'll be going off to London once one day soon won't you to drama school I said will I they said, well, of course you will. You're not going to work in a gift shop in a cathedral for the rest of your life. You're 16 years old. Get out of here. <laughs> so I applied to drama school. My husband, my husband, my boyfriend and I split up and I applied to drama school like the week after as some sort of knee-jerk reaction to that. And I got in. It was a very strange time of year because I, I applied very short notice and I got accepted a very short notice and then I was gone suddenly. Were drama schools as competitive back then as they are now do you think it's a good question um what i know is that when i was at drama school none of them were accredited so there was no funding at all you know in uh, from the state or from any sort of ucas or, or, or that sort of perspective um so 
20 years ago when I started at Mount View, it was £18,000 for three years. Now, I hate to think what, it, what the equivalent of that now is at, at Mount View. Um, massive classes, very, very big classes of 30 or more that, that we were in, in tiny, tiny surroundings. You know, the actual school itself was not fit for purpose. I will say again, Mount View were quite famous for taking people who sometimes had no chance whatsoever of getting through the first term, but they'd had your first term's money and your deposit money that you didn't get back. Really? Allegedly. And I'm sure that there are other schools that one could say that about. But yeah, I mean, no, people that couldn't speak a sentence of English. And, you know, they were sat down at the end of the first term and told, you don't have enough you know, literally just don't have the vocabulary for us to, for you to understand what we're trying to teach you, which is fair dues, but why the hell did you get accepted and, you know, had your money accepted in the first place? The other thing was that, uh, as a lot of people know about me, is I never graduated from Mountview. They threw me out before I graduated, which is, of course, why I'm being so bitter. Uh, <laughs> I ran out of money, you know, hold my hand up, absolutely say, my fault. How did you afford it? Uh, my mum and dad were paying for it. I got, I think I did get a very small grant, a very small grant towards my funding, but my mum and dad were paying for it. And my mum and dad split up whilst I was at drama school. Oh, no. And having a, a difficult, you know, inopportune time for me because suddenly, with the best will in the world, uh, my needs got forgotten. And uh, one of the practical reasons was that they couldn't help me anymore. Yeah. I'm very grateful that they helped me all they can. And they've always been tremendous and still are. But it was a bit of a blow and it was one of the factors in me having to leave drama school, which I know they both feel awful about, but it's just well, what happened, you it's know. It's life really, isn't it? I mean, you can't really plan for these things no. around the bitterness. The bitterness with the school is not about that. You know, if you can't pay for something, you can't buy it. I get that. But it was how it was dealt with. And the fact that I am aware that in the past, when things like that have happened at the same school, it has been dealt with a lot better and people have been given much more leeway. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen with me. That's, it is often, I find, when, when things happen to you, it's, you can accept them much better if they're done in a graceful way and then when things aren't quite... Uh, well, the, the, the headmaster had, had retired and his predecessor was on a sabbatical at another school and I think having a training course on how to be a headmaster, actually. And so he was gone for almost an entire term. And again, very bad timing. That was the term when I, you know, went and held my hands up and said, I've got to leave. I haven't got any money. And the other teachers, bless them, tried to find ways of helping me through it and made suggestions of, that I could do, like write to people that had graduated from the school previously, ask them for help. You know, my entire class, minus two people who shall remain nameless, which <laughs> had a sponsored silence to raise money for me, which if you know anything about musical theatre singers at a drama school, that's massive. <laughs> to up. have a sponsored <laughs> silence for an afternoon is massive. Um, you know, um, and uh, then I, I got to this stage where I thought, oh, I think I'm staying. I think I've got away with it or something. Or, you know, they're just going to sort it out somehow and help me. Yeah. Headmaster came back, you know, suddenly one day. I was called into his office and he said, I'm he sure you know why you're here. Time. He hadn't been there the whole time. No dialogue with me at all. And said, I'm sure you know why you're in, you're in this office. I said, yeah, I know exactly why. He said, have you got the money? And have you got it now? I said, no. He said, then you have to leave in the next <sighs> half an hour. You have to pack your locker up and leave. It's like it was like going to prison, but the opposite, I was leaving. That's 
Pack your locker up and leave it within half an hour. That is incredibly brutal. And I said, I am aware that um, some of this happened to somebody last year, in the year above me, and they were given you know, help and support, and he said, that's hearsay. My goodness. So how did you come back from that? Because that must have been a real blow. I lay on the sofa for two and a half weeks crying <laughs> and eating cheese. <laughs> <laughs> That's when I put on a lot of weight. I, <laughs> I think that's totally justified. Dipping blocks of cheese into a jar of mayonnaise. Uh, <laughs> Actually, that's really good. <laughs> it is. If you're ever depressed, take my advice. It's better than cocaine. And then one of my teachers that I just, the, the, uh, Esther Charkham, who just directed us, she put me in touch with a couple of casting directors, friends of hers, and got me some auditions because she knew I wasn't going to get to do my graduation in front of those hundreds of agents which I didn't get to do um, so I had some auditions and I got a paid job because of uh, Esther I got a paid uh, voiceover job it was a pilot a voiceover pilot for a sitcom that never happened unfortunately then I uh, the last time I just spoke to Esther literally the last time I spoke to her, I don't think I've ever spoken to her since she said just get off the sofa and do something and I went and volunteered in a a drop-in centre for people with HIV and AIDS and worked in the kitchen every lunchtime or it was four days a week, something like that and made some friends that were nothing to do with school that were nothing to do with the people I lived with and just made me get up and have a wash every day and leave the house (laughs) just like the hardest thing and I didn't understand why Esther told me to do it and I didn't think it would work but for whatever reason I did it and she was absolutely right yeah yeah gives you gives you a different perspective and it just gives you a purpose. Well, also, you know, you're meeting people who are suffering with HIV <laughs> and AIDS, and back then you didn't survive HIV and AIDS yeah. like you can now in this country. That really put things into perspective yeah, exactly. for me. <laughs> well, yeah, I was trying to put it gently, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Seeing how much worse off other Shut people Shut up are, and stop yeah. crying, really. And it's also good to get, because I think, you know, schools, particularly drama schools, because drama is so much about emotion, can be such a, a pressure cooker of people with emotions running high and everything's riding on it and being inside that environment can can make you quite myopic about things so being yeah. able to come out and get a perspective of the wider world can, can be quite healthy yes i agree i agree we had these very controversial classes at school uh, drama school called um emotional release they were called um the, the teacher who ran them was very controversial for running them and they were basically about sort of breaking you down emotionally so you'd come in with like a little speech like say you know you're going to do hamlet soliloquy or whatever it was and then they would get you to do it in different ways you know punching a pillow hitting a wall one person you know he got the rest of the class to sit on them and then he had to try and escape from them and stuff like that and, you know, some of us found it helpful. Some of us co- thought it was the biggest pile of wank that had ever crossed our paths. And some people really got into a big mess by going through that process. You know, one guy, very, very big guy, big, tall, strong, older than everybody else, um, had this strange flashback about his mother's suicide and ended up almost hitting someone else, a tiny little fragile girl in the room. Um, it was awful and the problem was that the teacher who was running these classes they had no way of picking you back up and putting you back together there was no counselling after the session I mean literally the bell went that was it he walked out the room and you were left oh no I think he was he did you know invite sometimes for you to have one to ones with him but he had no formal training and counselling and often people were just left 
And more than the person that had just been through it, the people that just had to watch it were left with no redress. You know. So, you know, it took about five years after I left, but he was eventually thrown out for running them. I'm not surprised. And I mean, but why did it take so bloody long? Yeah, that's one of my absolute bugbears about theatre, particularly directors, these cowboy directors who come in and they think they can do the show and they can get actors to release something of themselves. They have no formal training in counselling, no formal psychological training. They've just like found these techniques and they think it'd be so great to bring these really real emotions to the surface for their amazing play. And they have no idea how to repack that box so the person, the poor actor leaving the room yeah. is okay and able to function afterwards and yeah. able to, to put their defence mechanisms back in place. And I think it's one of the big problems of the industry, I think. Uh, Laurence Olivier said, why don't you just try acting, darling? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't have to have, well... This is my personal opinion. I'm sure some directors would disagree with me, but you don't have to have these like incredibly raw, real emotional breakdowns in a rehearsal room to produce a very good performance. No, I, and I think I think you know it, it's a process. It's some people's process, and I think there's value in it to a certain extent. Sure. But you've got to be careful. given. You've got to be careful, <laughs> and you've got to be given the. You've got to give permission to how far people want to go with it if they don't want to take part in it for whatever reason and I do things that aren't a million miles away from it in the training courses I run but it's all caveated with I don't want you to bring anything to the table that isn't already processed I don't want you to deal with uh, bring up anything that is really really raw or personal and please be aware that we are not counsellors and you know you, you can only go so far with these things yeah well you seem very sensitive to that um, possibly due to your experiences with it I would wager um, even just listening in on the session earlier, which seems like quite an innocuous exercise where you just ask people to explore themselves through colour, um, you were still like, if you don't want to do it, if it's not useful to you, throw it away, like, don't yeah. feel the, the some need people to push hate, yourself. Some people or... hate that exercise because, because it scares them. Mm. And their way of processing that when I get them to sit in a circle and say, so, you know, any, any thoughts about that was, well, essentially they go, I, I just found that stupid or, you know, I didn't get anything out of that. That's fine. That's a valid answer. I, what, I, what I would suggest is that that's not the end of the story <laughs> there for whatever reason. That, then they're not in a place to be able to ask those questions and that's okay as well. Yeah. You take it for what it's worth to you. Mm. That's a very sensitive way approaching that and recognising that some people aren't able to go past those boundaries um, in a comfortable fashion. Well, if somebody's come to, to work with Jamie and I on our courses, they've made an investment in time, they've made an investment in money, um, and we are here, and we've got the skills, and we want to share them with you, and there's loads we can do, but it's going to be up to you what you bring to the table and how far you're prepared to go. And some people can't go very far because of emotional blockages or just stuff, stuff going on in their life, you know. Sometimes there's so much stuff. I mean, I know from my own personal life there have been times where I think if I say out loud how I really feel right now, I will, I will like, like a piece of, you know, biscuit um, pottery, I will crumble, I will fall apart. I'll be like Humpty Dumpty, you will not be able to put me back together again. That's not true. But I didn't know that for a very, very long time. How did you go from your somewhat uh, embittered and, and slightly cowboy experience in drama school <laughs> with these teachers who maybe didn't necessarily know quite what they were doing? How did you go from there and, and your work in the, the soup kitchen and watching these poor people? It sounds like quite a dark, dark period. Just yeah, well, it was. School. Looking back, it was. It was a dark period. But How did you manage to... Now, I haven't been asked that? about drama school for a long time, but I... 
I, I didn't enjoy it. Mm. I didn't enjoy my three years at drama school. I spent, I spent most of the time being, being sort of attacked and broken down for my personality, which, as I say, was flamingly homosexual. Um, just being told I'd never work, and you know, n never ever by any, one person. One person said to me, "You're great, and I like what you do, and th there's you know parts out there for you." We, we we could well let's do it you know, Lacajo Fall, the Rocky Horror Show, Hairspray you know <laughs> we could go on for quite a long time couldn't we yeah and twenty years ago it wasn't that different to to now although there is more well those are all classics yeah exactly they're not even like the they're not even like the the more modern ones they're like last fifty years you know, yeah. like. there was there was nobody there going there's nothing wrong with who and what you are and if that's how you're going to harass you might limit what you do. <laughs> It might limit what you do, well, but everyone's got play limits. to your strengths, maybe. Yeah. You everyone's know. got limits. I came out of it all um, with a fuck you attitude, eventually, with a I will show you. And the reason I do all the things I do is, be one of the reasons is because I got thrown out of drama school and I wasn't allowed to graduate. I was rejected again, like I was re rejected in the playground. <laughs> uh, I was rejected again. And it just made me go fuck you yeah and I'm grateful that it happened now I'm grateful that the, that I didn't graduate I'm grateful that it eventually meant that I found a path that led me into this strange clearing called cabaret <laughs> <laughs> within the woods of theatre yeah well it would be a much poorer scene without you for sure <laughs> absolutely for sure so what did you did you just get more jobs on the drama circuit? How did you find Cabaret? I was working um, in a restaurant on Old Compton Street called The Dome, and I was serving lunch one day, and these two gay guys came in and sat down, and I talked to them, because I was their waiter, and I found out that they were drag queens around the corner in Madame Jojo's. So they told me all about JoJo's and I told them that I'd just left drama school and that uh, it sounded fascinating and I told them that I'd won, you know, a couple of times played Frankenfurter for, for Halloween parties and I think I'd sung as Frankenfurter once at like a concert for charity. And they said, we're doing auditions for Showgirls. Well, they're not, but the, the, you know, JoJo's was auditioning for Showgirls like the next week and I should come and an audition because it was very rare back then it's much less rare now but it was very rare back then in London that there were any drag queens on the circuit with any formal drama training or musical theatre training 20 years ago you've got to remember this as well eight, 17 years ago now um, so I went and I auditioned and I got the job and I started working at Madame Jojo's three nights a week as Trinity Million and I worked with uh, two older drag queens who are our sort of mamas uh, Crystal Wade and Kitty Cartier, who taught me everything about drag and a lot about cabaret as well. And my comedy partner, Penny Century, was, um, uh, was enlisted with me. And Penny was younger than me, much younger, about three or four years younger, and very, very shy and timid. And I took him under my wing, and Kitty and uh, Crystal took both of us under their wings, and we performed there for about seven months together, three nights a week. I remember sitting backstage in this tiny dressing room, absolutely minuscule dressing room with four grown men all flinging massive feather boas and corsets around the place trying to do a quick change and thinking, I've come home. And about two weeks later thinking, get me out of this fucking place. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but for a very short period, I remember thinking, this is my home. There's a wonderful, wonderful dichotomy to drag and, and theatre in general and the backstage of theatre. I remember Crystal scraping her glitter off with a palette knife and dumping it into an overflowing ashtray. This is when you could smoke indoors. Um, and uh, using vegetable oil to take off our makeup because we couldn't afford real makeup remover. And it was ravaging my skin. And just, you know, some of the girls that worked not on stage but in the VIP room at JoJo's were, were basically just transvestite um, hookers. And, you know, they would have to come through our dressing room with punters to get to their VIP room. It's like just so massively seedy and crass and gross. And you know, people being drunk on the job and and people being lecherous and sound men treating you like dirt and amidst all of the Liza Manelli numbers and the and the heels and the fishnets and the fabulous this grit this really gritty <laughs> underside yeah yeah and that's I'm sure exactly what it's like at most drag places that are happening right now it's it's a lot of I just think the performing arts industry is when I work with the circus the the motto that we used to shout around was um Sparkle and sawdust. Sparkle and sawdust. Because you would finish a show and you'd have to pack up the tent. You'd be in full face makeup. You had no time to do anything, and you'd be shoveling sawdust out of the ring, which was full of horse poo. Wow. Into big plastic bags in your show makeup in grimy, grimy clothes. But I thought flyering at Edinburgh was bad. Oh no, flyering <laughs> at Edinburgh is worse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. I'm glad it still it's so works. <laughs> Maybe even more so now. There's too many people. I hate flowering at Edinburgh. Yeah, I hate so Edinburgh. <laughs> I don't hate the city. It's a beautiful city. And I went to Edinburgh last year for the very first time just to see stuff and shake hands and see some old, you know, colleagues and show my face for five days. And uh, it was great. Mostly my experiences of Edinburgh have been pretty crappy as a performer, really. Where did you go from, from drag queens and JoJo's, which is such a, it's got, I don't know if it's still the same way, but you get that vibe that it's a little bit, a little bit sleazy underneath when you go there. How did you go from there to, to well, like where you are now? What was the journey of that? I resigned on the night that the aircon wasn't working and they forced us to still go out on the floor after the show. So we did three half hour shows. I think they were at like 11 midnight on one. And we were expected to go out on the floor and waitress and serve drinks in between the shows. 50 quid a night, including your makeup money. Anyway, we usually got away without doing much waitressing, let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but there was a time when uh, our show, the club got turned into another club night, which I think is quite a common thing that happens in clubs now. I compare at Café de Prix on a Saturday and after the Showtime Cabaret, they reopen the doors and a whole bunch of new people come in for just a club and dance thing. You know, and Joe Joseph was doing that. It was a school disco thing run by the DJ Toby Anstis. And so he literally took over like 20 minutes after our last cabaret. And we had been asked to stay and mingle with the school disco people and stay on duty for an extra hour or something. And this was not part of the original contract. This had been thrown at us at quite short notice. They were already pissed off about it. Then the aircon broke down one day and we were told we still had to go out and mingle with a completely packed, completely packed managers. I mean, they couldn't see you. They were so close to your face, they couldn't see they had a drag queen next to you. There's no need for us to be there. The work had been done, the vibe had been created. But she made us go out, this horrible manager woman. And um, 
if you know anything about stage makeup, which you do, yeah. it doesn't last very well when there's no aircon and 400 people standing in front of you and you've already had it on for two hours and three layers. I used to wear three layers of makeup when I was a drag queen. And literally, you know, it just it, you come out of no, that room and it fell on the floor, the whole face <laughs> around the so, for, you know, for that reason, for the fact it wasn't part of a contract, for the fact she was taking the piss in general, we held a, a general strike, the four of us, and refused to um, to go out on the floor and just said, no, we're going home. And then I resigned the next day. Yeah. And I left. And I um, I started running my own month weekly show called Trinities, which was a cabaret drag name. Um, and Trinities was a, a sort of a review, a variety show, co compared by Dusty Limits, who I've been working with now, well, 16, 17 years. And I was at the, you know, the star in inverted commas. It was like the Muppet show, like Dusty <laughs> was Kermit and I was Miss Piggy. And then all these other freaks turned up and threw some fish around and stuff. And very short, you know, succinct, that, that sort of variety vaudeville, nothing longer than seven minutes and then the next thing, let's keep it as, you know, as varied as we can. And we did that once a week. Um, I met Dusty in the same cafe as I met the Drag Queens, actually. That cafe has a lot to answer for. Um, uh, we did it once a week in a place called Bar Aquarius, which was next to the Astoria, G-A-Y. That got closed down for Crossrail to be built. This is decades ago, and Crossrail still hasn't opened. Um, <laughs> and we moved from... We started in Cabaret, Cabaret on Soho Square, Cabaret with a K, but the drinks were so expensive, none of us could even afford one. Um, so we left Cabaret, and we went to Bar Aquarius, and we loved it there. Then they got closed down and we moved to the Battersea Barge. And I've been at the Barge until recently for 13 years. And I ran Trinities until I hung up my heels and killed off Trinity seven years later. Why did you kill off Trinity? She just ran her course? There was lots of factors. Six inch heels and a 28 inch corset and three layers of makeup and shaving three times. Ain't good for your body or your skin. And I started to hate all of that. And everything that was liberating about her to begin with became limiting instead. When I first discovered her and worked at JoJo's, I was suddenly, not that it stopped me before tremendously, was able to sing all these women's songs that I wanted to sing, I'd always wanted to sing, and to some extent I had sung. But because Trinity was such a character, it wasn't me in a dress, I created a real character with a backstory and a life and friends and a look when I got tired of the look, I knew I couldn't just put on a bigger dress or put gloves on so I didn't have to shave my arms and my fingers and my hands anymore or just let the five o'clock shadow show a bit and that would be enough. It wasn't good enough. It wouldn't have been. I'm plucking my eyebrows as well. I couldn't let it just go. I'd rather kill it, which is what I did. But the other reason, which I must be very honest about, uh, other than you know her being so limiting and again the material being limiting, was suddenly couldn't sing that because Trin wouldn't sing it. I remember saying that loads of times, Trin would never sing that. Mm. The other reason was because I couldn't find a boyfriend because they all thought I was a freak. <laughs> what? Nobody wanted to shag me because <laughs> they all thought that what I did on stage was something I did in bed. Right. And they thought it was something that I, I was interested in doing off stage, which was not the case and never has been. And I don't think it ever will be, although I do <laughs> do drag once in a while still. Um, and I got very scared that I would die alone <laughs> was like, I was like 24 <laughs> worrying about dying alone I was like 24 <laughs> years old um, so uh, no I wasn't that young but I was, I was under 30 and I was worrying about dying alone so uh, that is a massive factor why I killed her off and stopped doing it
because I was worried that I would never find love. She was limiting your personal life. She was encroaching on that territory. Yeah. In a negative way. It's so funny how people see performers and assume that the persona they have on stage is how you are off stage. It is. I I, I wonder if I didn't do myself any a disservice in the way I, I behaved when I wasn't being trained because I probably was being like her she had so much power and anyone that's done any sort of mask work or drag work will tell you there's a tremendous power in being that character and hiding behind that mask you know I could do and say the most tremendous things and as we've talked about coming from these places of being knocked here and knocked there and you know that was my way that that was my phoenix from the fire way of going actually i'll take charge here i mean i used to say the most disgraceful things to audiences and they would laugh and if i said them in trousers i'd have just been beaten to a pulp (laughs) i said to a black man in the audience what are you doing here why shouldn't you be rolling with your homies or something (laughs) i can't believe i said that to another human being no matter what color their skin is but literally the entire room fell silent the entire cast who were all in the room went Then he started laughing and everybody else started laughing and we carried on with the show. But for a moment, everyone thought I was about to be murdered. And I wouldn't have blamed him if he had hit me. It's such a rude, not terribly funny thing to say to someone. But that's drag queens for you. They get away with murder. Yeah. (laughs) That's the thing. When you riff on stage and when you're just doing things off the cuff, sometimes bullshit comes out of your mouth and sometimes offensive things come out of your mouth. And I had got to a stage... I was drinking, you know, I, I wasn't averse to having a half a bottle of wine in the dressing room before the show. I got to the stage where I felt pretty invincible in drag and on stage. Mm. Not always for the good. Yeah. So how did you go from being this sort of an indefatigable drag queen character and also running your own night with, with Dusty? Um, how did that, how, how did you enter being, becoming an agent? Oh, well, um, my... Um, I was on the books of an agency. The agency I now run was originally called something else and run by somebody else. It was called Better Chemistry. And I worked for them as a compare and a singer. And I went to collect some money from them in cash one day in the office. Very unusual thing for me to have to do. Never done it before, never been to the office before. And I went to see Matilda. And she was massively heavily pregnant, which I didn't know. And I said, well, what's gonna happen when you have your baby? Are you leaving? What's happening? And she said, oh, I think we're selling the agency, like, next week. <laughs> and she was like, I think, I'm not sure. I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I went home and I told my husband, and he said, let's buy it. And I said, I don't want to be an agent. I think they are <laughs> the spawn of the devil. I think they're like estate agents. I don't <laughs> want to be like that. That's not what I'm interested in. But he'd just left a very, very good career in TV and was looking for something new to do. I already ran a production company that, you know, produced shows like Trinity's. And he said, it will add value to what you do, and I can run it and work alongside you, and we can build the two things to make something, one thing that's even bigger and stronger. So we took over Better Chemistry, and eventually we rebranded it and my production company as Excess All Areas, which is what it is today. My husband was appalling at being an agent, absolutely awful. I had to sit him down and tell him one day. (laughs) <laughs> and um, he went off and got a job uh, in the charity sector, which he's awesome at. He's um, oh, good. astonishingly good at it and loves it. That was been a bit of a tricky conversation, though. It was really hard. It was like 6 a.m. and the kitchen sink had just broken. And I was really worried about money. And I sort of said, we can't both be taking a risk and being self-employed and sticking our necks out like this. One of us needs to have the stability of an income coming in and a job for the other one to be brave enough to do the other. 
and you're shit at this. <laughs> and I made him cry. <laughs> but, you know, a day later, he was nodding and agreeing with me. But it meant I had to take over the agency, which I have mixed feelings about to this day. Yeah. I've certainly made a bet much better go of it than he ever did, but I do have mixed feelings about it. I just wanted to ask, obviously you were at The Barge, and that became your kind of home with your producing shows. Yeah. and cheese and crackers and your incredible um it's like pantos and murder mysteries yeah. and um you've moved on recently yes um, which is quite exciting moving to a new home i hope that's a positive move <laughs> it wasn't wasn't something i wanted to happen originally i was very sad about leaving the barge it was very very it was heartbreaking it was absolutely heartbreaking leaving the barge after 14 years but i think it is a very exciting move and I do see the possibilities rather than the, you know, the, the, the oh, woe is me, I've lost my spiritual home, which is how I felt for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's great. And the doors, loads of doors are open and others ajar and people beckoning and saying, come and look at us. And that's great. Yeah. I have a question I asked at the end of the podcast uh, for pretty much everyone, unless they're not a performer type person, in which case I twisted a bit, which is what is the best thing that's happened to you on stage and what is the worst thing that's happened to you on stage? <laughs> And I'm sure you have some fabulous stories that you haven't shared yet. You're like a mine of, <laughs> <laughs> of incredible information. The best thing that's happened to me on stage is um, I got three encores with standing ovations at the barge. It's, it's only holds wow. 75 people. We're not talking about the O2 here, but we've got three encores. Uh, all of which had standing ovations uh, in in them on one of the very last Trinity shows just before I killed her off. Wow. That's well, the best feeling. Three standing ovations. That's like a standing ovation of 225. <laughs> <laughs> I, su I suppose. So. It was people standing up going, I'm not sitting on that. That's disgusting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the worst thing... The worst thing happens off stage as soon as you've walked off. I remember that in that same era very 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 close to that same night it, it might have even been the same night actually could have been going home to no one and nothing and being alone with nothing but a bear and i'm not understanding how to take that you know adoration and then that loneliness yeah. straight afterwards and that plummet yeah. and not not knowing how to square those two things I think that that kind of the darkness that lurks behind a lot of performers and behind this world of, of you know hyper glamour and and hyper emotion is is that that very real darkness it's quite it's quite scary really. it's very scary there's one other thought which i'll leave you with which is um i did a gig for vodafone once um 13,000 people um in this um massive stadium that they created just for one day um for their staff Christmas party. How much money do these people Oh, have this was long, it was a while ago, before the bubble burst and everything, but yeah, buckets of money. And they were, I mean, I was performing and opening the show, and Elton John and Cheryl Crow and Blue were all in the show as well, and Tommy Kitten, I think. I mean, it was massive. And I had to go out on stage as Nicole Kidman in drag and <laughs> mime to Nature Boy. And I thought when I came on stage that there was 13,000 people booing, that they were clapping. I didn't know what the noise was, and I thought people were booing. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> so 
when you came off, was everyone like, that was amazing? Yeah, people were clapping. <laughs> oh, <Yeah. laughs> that's the potential worst moment, Jenny. Yeah, actually quite I know. an amazing moment. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. And then someone nicked my shoes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, it's been so wonderful chatting to you today. Can you tell people where to find you on the internet, gigs you've got coming up, things you want to tell people about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can go to paullmartin.com, which is a kind of catch-all for all the other 27 websites and different things I do, but paullmartin.com will take you from there to what I do as a performer, what I do as an agent, what we do as a training course for singers and stuff, so that's the best place to go. And I'm at Café de Paris about twice a month as the compare for Saturday night cabaret shows but check the listings because sometimes they have someone not as good as me <laughs> and have you got any events that you would like to tell the world about that are coming up apart from Cabaret de Paris yeah next week um, we have well as always our monthly cabaret show Cabaret Confidential which I produce I'm not in but I produce is on at the Pheasantry and the night after on Friday the 22nd of August um, will be the showcase of this um, intake, the summer intake of the Singers Cabaret Workshop. So after two weeks of working with my colleague Jamie and me, they get on stage and perform what they've potentially learned from us. So that's also at the Pheasantry on the King's Road. So, so exciting. And a little bit further in the future, I know Cheese and Crackers is back at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. Brand new home from the 3rd of September at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. We're very Amazing. excited about that. And Such a great venue. I'll be able to reveal very soon that we're, uh, what our new home for the Panto is, but there will be a Panto. We are carrying on with what was the Battersea Budge Pantos, and we will be back this Christmas. Excellent. And then even further in the future is the Cabaret Convention as well, which... Yeah, 11th of October at the Proud Archivist in Haggerston. It's going to be amazing. We're having a choir, we're having a exercise class, we're having films shown, we're having a cabaret in the evening, which the wonderful Jamie Anderson is comparing. We've got panel discussions, and you're going to do a podcast, aren't you? Oh, yes, I'm going to do a live <laughs> show! <laughs> I'm so excited about it. Ah. Um, terrified, but really excited. <laughs> I think it's going to be really fun. It's going to be great. Podcasting in front of a live audience. Yeah. It's, going to be, it's going to be cool. I'll be much better by that point. Uh, <laughs> You're already grand. We love you. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank um, you. I have been your host, Rosie Cole. You can find me all over the internet. You can find me at rosiecole.com. You can find me at facebook.com forward slash rosiecoledancer. You can find me on Twitter at Rosie underscore Cole and if you have any ideas about the podcast you want to share you've got comments suggestions maybe I'll do an episode with the listener Q&A answer some questions um, please please send me an email at Rosie, uh, Dancer at gmail.com I would love your feedback thanks again for listening and have a wonderful day